Live show, end of October. Dracula will be there. Will you? Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Previously, Jonathan Harker arrives at Castle Dracula to help the Count with the newly purchased London property at Carfax. After seeing Dracula climb headfirst down the side of the castle wall, and after an encounter with three terrifying vampire women, Jonathan questions his very sanity. Lucy secretly admits to Jonathan's fiancée, Mina, her love for Arthur Holmwood. The Count requires three post-dated letters from Jonathan, abruptly ending June 29th. God help me. I now know the span of my life. Episode 2, My Own Body a Banquet. Letter, Lucy Westenra to Mina Murray, 24th May. My dearest Mina, thanks and thanks and thanks again for your sweet letter. My dear, it never rains but it pours. How true the old proverbs are. Here am I, who shall be 20 in September, and yet I never had a proposal till today. Not a real proposal, and today I have had three. Just fancy. Three proposals in one day. Isn't it awful? I feel sorry, really and truly sorry for two of the poor fellows. Oh, Mina, I am so happy that I don't know what to do with myself. And three proposals. But you must keep it a secret, dear, from everyone except, of course, Jonathan. You will tell him because I would, if I were in your place, certainly tell Arthur. Well, my dear... Number one came just before lunch. I told you of him, Dr. John Seward, the lunatic asylum man with the strong jaw and the good forehead. He was very cool outwardly, but was nervous all the same. He almost managed to sit down on his silk hat, which men don't generally do when they are cool. He spoke to me, Mina, very straightforwardly. He told me how dear I was to him, though he had known me so little and what his life would be with me to help and cheer him. Then he broke off and asked if I could love him in time, and when I shook my head, his hands trembled. Mina, I felt a sort of duty to tell him there was someone else. I only told him that much, and then he stood up, and he looked very strong and very grave as he took both my hands in his and said he hoped I would be happy, and that if I ever wanted a friend... I must count him one of my best. Oh, Mina, dear, I can't help crying. You must excuse this letter being all blotted. Being proposed to is all very nice and all that sort of thing, but it isn't at all a happy thing when you have to see a poor fellow whom you know loves you honestly, going away and looking all broken-hearted. 
Number two came after lunch. He was such a nice fellow, an American from Texas, and he looked so young and so fresh that it seems almost impossible that he has been to so many places and has had such adventures. Mr. Quincy P. Morris found me all alone. It seems that a man always does find a girl alone. No, he doesn't, for Arthur tried twice to make a chance, and I helping him all I could. Mr. Morris, he found out that it amused me to hear him talk American slang and said such funny things. Well, Mr. Morris sat down beside me and looked as happy and jolly as he could. Miss Lucy, I know I ain't good enough to regulate the fixings of your little shoes. Won't you just hitch up alongside me and let us go down the long road together, driving in double harness? <laughs> I almost laughed, but he really did look serious when he was saying it. And I couldn't help feeling a bit more serious, too. I know, Mina, you will think me a horrid flirt. Though I couldn't help feeling a sort of exultation that he was number two in one day. And then, my dear, before I could say a word, he began pouring out a perfect torrent of love-making, laying his very heart and soul at my feet. I suppose he saw something in my face which checked him. Lucy, you are an honest-hearted girl. Tell me, like one good fellow to another, is there anyone else that you care for? And if there is, I'll never trouble you a hair's breadth again, but will be, if you will let me, a very faithful friend. My dear Mina, why are men so noble when we women are so little worthy of them? Here was I, almost making fun of this great-hearted, true gentleman. I really felt very badly. Why can't they let a girl marry three men, or as many as want her, and save her all this trouble? I told him there was someone I love, though he has not told me yet that he even loves me. Thank you for your sweet honesty to me. And goodbye. He wrung my hand and, taking up his hat, went straight out of the room without looking back, without a tear or a quiver or a pause. Oh, why must a man like that be made unhappy when there are lots of girls who would worship the very ground he trod on? Oh, about number three. I needn't tell you about number three, need I? Besides, it was all so confused. It seemed only a moment from his coming into the room till both his arms were round me and he was kissing me. I'm very, very happy and I don't know what I've done to deserve it. I must only try in the future to show that I am not ungrateful to God for all his goodness to me in sending me such a lover, such a husband, and such a friend. Ever your loving, Lucy. Dr. Seward's diary. Kept on phonograph, 25th May. Cannot eat, cannot rest, so diary instead. Since my rebuff of yesterday, I have a sort of empty feeling. Nothing in the world seems to be worth the doing. As I knew that the only cure for this sort of thing was work, I went down amongst the patients. I picked up one who has afforded me a study of much interest. R.M. Renfield. Sanguine temperament, great physical strength, morbidly excitable, Periods of gloom ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. Letter, Quincy P. Morris to Honorable Arthur Holmwood, May 25th. My dear Art, 
We've told yawns by the campfire in the prairies and dressed one another's wounds after trying to land at the Marquesas. I have no hesitation in asking you, as I know a certain little lady is busy with a certain dinner party and that you are free. There will be only one other, our old pal at the Korea, Jack Seward. He's coming too, and we both want to drink a health with all our hearts to the happiest man in the wide world who has won the noblest heart that God has made and the best worth winning. We promise you a hearty welcome and a loving greeting and a health as true as your own right hand. Yours as ever and always, Quincy P. Morris. Telegram from Arthur Homewood to Quincy P. Morris, 26th May. Count me in every time. I bear messages which will make both your ears tingle. Heart. Journal, Captain Shorthand, 28th May. There is a chance to send word home. A band of Romani have come to the castle and are encamped in the courtyard. I shall write some letters home and shall try to get them to have them posted. I've already spoken to them through my window to begin acquaintanceship. They took their hats off to me and made many signs, which, however, I could not understand any more than I could their spoken language. I have written two letters. Mina's is in shorthand and I simply asked Mr. Hawkins to communicate with her. To her, I have explained my situation, but without the horrors. It would shock and frighten her to death were I to expose my heart to her. Should the letters not carry, then the Count shall not yet know my secret or the extent of my knowledge. I have done it! I have given them the letters. I threw them through the bars of my window with a gold piece and made what signs I could to have them posted. The man who took them pressed them to his heart and bowed and then put them in his cap. I could do no more. I stole back to the study and began to read. I am hopeful. Later. The Count has come. He sat down beside me and opened two letters. I found the Romani with these. One is from you and to my friend Peter Hawkins. The other... He caught sight of the strange symbols as he opened the envelope written in shorthand, and a dark look came into his face, and his eyes blazed wickedly. The other is a vile thing, an outrage upon friendship and hospitality. It is not signed. <laughs> well, so it cannot matter to us. <laughs> he calmly held letter and envelope in the flame of the lamp till they were consumed. The letter to Hawkins, that I shall, of course, send on since it is yours. Your letters are sacred to me. Will you not seal it again? I sealed and handed it back to him in silence. When he went out of the room, I could hear the key turn softly. A minute later, I went over and tried it, and the door was locked. Journal kept in shorthand, 31st May. This morning when I woke, I thought I would retrieve some paper and envelopes from my bag and keep them close in my pocket, so that I might write to Mina in case I should get an opportunity, but a shock. 
Every scrap of paper is gone, and all my notes, my memoranda relating to railways and travel, my letter of credit, in fact, all that might be useful to me were I once outside the castle. I made search of my portmanteau and in the wardrobe where I had placed my clothes. The suit in which I had traveled is gone, and also my overcoat. I could find no trace of them anywhere. Fifth June. The case of Renfield grows more interesting the more I get to understand the man. He has certain largely developed qualities, selfishness, secrecy, and purpose. He seems to have some settled scheme of his own, but what it is I do not yet know. His pets are of odd sorts. Just now his hobby is catching flies. He has at present such a quantity that I have asked him to remove his collection for sanitary reasons. He thought for a moment. May I have three days? I shall clear them away. Of course. I said that would do. I must watch him. 18th June. He has turned his mind now to spiders, and has got several very big fellows in a box. He keeps feeding them with his flies, and the number of the latter is becoming sensibly diminished, although he has used half his food in attracting more flies from outside to his room. Journal kept in shorthand, 24th June. There is something going on. Before dawn, I heard the Romani somewhere in the castle doing work of some kind. I hear a faraway muffled sound as of mattock and spade, and whatever it is, it must be the end of some ruthless villainy. I had been at the window somewhat less than half an hour when I saw the Count scaling the wall below his window. I drew back and watched carefully and saw the whole man crawl towards the window. It was a new shock to me to find that he had on the suit of clothes which I had worn whilst traveling here and slung over his shoulder that terrible bag which I had seen the women take away. This then is his new scheme of evil that he may both leave evidence that I have been seen in the towns or villages posting my own letters, and that any wickedness which he does shall by the local people be attributed to me. It makes me rage to think that this can go on, and whilst I am shut up here a veritable prisoner, but without that protection of the law which is even a criminal's right and consolation. After a while, I heard something stirring in the Count's room. Something like a sharp wail, quickly suppressed. And then there was silence. Deep, awful silence which chilled me. With a beating heart, I tried the door, but I was locked in my prison, and I could do nothing. I sat down and, and simply cried. As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard without. The agonized cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and, throwing it up, peered out between the bars. There indeed was a woman with disheveled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward. Monster! Give me my child! 
She threw herself on her knees, crying the same words in tones which wrung my heart. I could hear the beating of her naked hands against the door. Somewhere, high overhead, I heard the voice of the Count, calling in his harsh, metallic whisper. Before many minutes had passed, a pack of wolves poured like a pent-up dam through the wide entrance into the courtyard. There was no cry from the woman. Before long, the wolves streamed away, singly, licking their lips. I could not pity her, for I knew what had become of her child. She was better dead. Journal, kept in shorthand, 25th June morning. No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and eye the morning can be. I have not yet seen the Count in the daylight. Can it be that he sleeps when others wake, that he may be awake whilst they sleep? Oh, if only I could get into his room. The door is always locked, no way for me. Yes, there is a way, if one dares to take it. Where his body has gone, why may not another body go? I have seen him myself crawl from his window. Why should I not imitate him and go in by his window? The chances are desperate, but my need is more desperate still. I shall risk it. At the worst, it can only be death, and the dreaded hereafter may still be open to me. God help me in my task. Goodbye, Mina, if I fail. Goodbye, my faithful friend and second father, Mr. Hawkins. Goodbye, all. And last of all, Mina. Later, I have made the effort, and God helping me, have come safely back to this room. I went outside on the narrow ledge of stone which runs around the building on the side. I took off my boots and ventured out on the desperate way. I looked down once, so as to make sure that a sudden glimpse of the awful depth would not overcome me, but after that kept my eyes away from it. I found myself standing on the windowsill and trying to raise up the sash. I bent down and slid feet foremost in through the window. The room was empty. It was barely furnished with odd things which seemed to have never been used and was covered with dust. I looked for the key and I could not find it anywhere. The only thing I found was a great heap of gold in one corner, gold of all kinds, Roman and British and Austrian and Hungarian, covered with a film of dust, as though it had lain long in the ground. None of it that I noticed was less than 300 years old. At one corner of the room there was a heavy door. I tried it, it was open and it led through a stone passage to a circular stairway which went steeply down. I descended, minding carefully where I went, for the stairs were dark. At the bottom there was a dark, tunnel-like passage, through which came a deathly, sickly odour, the odour of old earth newly turned. At last, I pulled open a heavy door which stood ajar, and found myself in an old ruined chapel 
which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The ground had recently been dug over, and the earth placed in great wooden boxes. There, one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep, I could not say which, for the eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death, and the cheeks had the warmth of life through all their pallor. The lips were red as ever, but there was no sign of movement, no pulse, no breath, no beating of the heart. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search, I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate that I fled from the place, and leaving the Count's room by the window, crawled again up the castle wall. Twenty-ninth June. Today is the date of my last letter, and the Count has taken steps to prove that it was genuine, for again I saw him leave the castle by the same window, and in my clothes. As he went down the wall, lizard fashion, I wished I had a gun or some lethal weapon that I might destroy him. Later, the Count unlocked my door. Tomorrow, my friend, we must part. Your letter home has been dispatched. Tomorrow I shall not be here, but all shall be ready for your journey home. In the morning, my carriage shall come for you and shall bear you to the Borgo Pass to meet the coach from Bukovina to Bistritz. I was determined to test his sincerity. Sincerity? It seems like a profanation of the word to write it in connection with such a monster. Why may I not go tonight? <laughs> because, dear sir, my coachman and horses are away. But I would walk with pleasure. I want to get away at once. You English have a saying which is close to my heart. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Come with me, my dear young friend. Not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. My heart leapt up at the chance. Hark! <laughs> It was almost as if the sound of wolves sprang up at the rising of his hand, just as the music of a great orchestra seems to leap under the baton of the conductor. He proceeded in his stately way to the door, drew back the ponderous bolts, unhooked the heavy chains, and began to draw it open. As the door began to open, the howling of the wolves without grew louder and angrier. Their red jaws with champing teeth and their blunt clawed feet as they leaped came in through the opening door. I knew then that to struggle at the moment against the Count was useless. With such allies as these at his command, I could do nothing. But still, the door continued slowly to open and only the Count's body stood in the gap. Suddenly it struck me that this might be the moment and the means of my doom. I was to be given to the wolves, and at my own instigation? Shut the door! I shall wait till morning! I covered my face with my hands to hide my tears of bitter disappointment. With one sweep of his powerful arm, the Count threw the door shut, and the great bolts clanged and echoed through the hall as they shot back into their places. The last I saw of Count Dracula was a red light of triumph in his eyes, 
and with a smile that Judas in hell might be proud of. When I was in my room and about to lie down, heard a whispering at my door. Back! Back to your own place! Your time has not yet come. Wait! Have patience! Tonight is mine. Tomorrow night is yours. Is it so then near the end? Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Lord, help me! Thirtieth June, morning. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Only when I heard the cock crow did I feel that I was safe. I opened my door and ran down to the hall. I had seen that the door was unlocked by the Count, and now escape was before me. With hands that trembled with eagerness, I unhooked the chains and drew back the massive bolts. But the door would not move. Despair seized me. I pulled and pulled and shook the door till massive as it was, it rattled in its casement. I determined then and there to scale the wall again and gain the Count's room. Without a pause, I rushed up to the east window and scrambled down the wall as before into the Count's room. I went through the door in the corner and down the winding stair and along the dark passage to the old chapel. I knew now well enough where to find the monster I sought. The great box was in the same place, close against the wall, but the lid was laid on it, not fastened down, but with the nails ready in their places to be hammered home. I knew I must reach the body for the key, so I raised the lid and laid it back against the wall. Then I saw something which filled my very soul with horror. There lay the Count, but looking as if his youth had been half-renewed, for the white hair and moustache were changed to dark iron grey. The cheeks were fuller, and the white skin seemed ruby-red underneath. The mouth was redder than ever, for on the lips were gouts of fresh blood, which trickled from the corners of his mouth and ran over the chin and neck. It seemed as if the whole creature was simply gorged with blood. He lay like a filthy leech, exhausted with repletion. I shuddered as I bent over to touch him, but I had to search or I was lost. The coming night might see my own body a banquet in a similar way. I felt all over the body, but no sign could I find of the key. There was a mocking smile on that bloated face which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being I was helping to transfer to London, where perhaps for centuries to come, he might amongst its teeming millions satiate his lust for blood and create a new and ever-widening circle of semi-demons to batten on the helpless. The very thought drove me mad. A terrible desire came over me to rid the world of such a monster. I seized a shovel, which the workman had been using to fill the cases, and lifting it high, struck with the edge downward at the hateful face. But as I did, the head turned, and the eyes fell full upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight seemed to paralyze me, and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash along the forehead. 
The shovel fell from my hand across the box, and the lid fell over again and hid the horrid thing from my sight. The last glimpse I had was of the bloated face, bloodstained, and fixed with a grin of malice. I waited, with a despairing feeling growing over me. I heard in the distance a song sung by merry voices coming closer, and through their song the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. The men were coming. I ran from the place and gained the Count's room, determined to rush out at the moment the door should be opened. There came the sound of many feet tramping and dying away in some passage which sent up a clanging echo. I was still a prisoner, and the net of doom was closing round me more closely. As I write, I hear many tramping feet, and the crash of weights being set down heavily, doubtless the boxes, with their freight of earth. There is a sound of hammering. It is the box being nailed down. Now I can hear the heavy feet tramping again along the hall. The door is shut, and the chains rattle. There is a grinding of the key in the lock. I can hear the key withdraw. Then another door opens and shuts. I hear the creaking of lock and bolt. In the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips, and the chorus of the men as they pass into the distance. I am alone in this castle with those awful women. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try to scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I may find a way from this dreadful place, and then a way for home, a way to the quickest and nearest train, a way from this cursed spot, from this cursed land, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. At least God's mercy is better than of these monsters and that precipice is steep and high. At its foot, a man may sleep as a man. Goodbye, all. Mina. Dracula, the radio play miniseries. Episode two, cast. Manir Malik-Nur as Jonathan Harker. Robert Harrower as Dracula. Tina Aurora as Lucy and the Bereaved Mother. Kenneth Sergianko, Dr. Seward. Duncan Cairns as Quincy Morris, Arthur Holmwood, and Renfield. Directed and edited by Robin Sadaboy and produced by Alex Ragozino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org.